Hey, let's, let's pray. Father, we uh, bow now uh, before we open your word together. And we ask, dear God, that you would teach us. We pray that your spirit will work through the, the words that are, are read, the words that are spoken. And transform us, dear God, into the people you desire. Help me now as I speak. Fill me with your words, I pray. Amen. Betrayal. The mere word puts us on edge. There is something about the word betrayal that that gets us all sort of worked up and, and, and uptight. There's something about the word betrayal that brings all sorts of fear and uncertainty. There's something about the word betrayal that brings a lot of pain and a lot of heartache to people. Have you ever been betrayed? Well, the chances are you will have been. And if by some chance you haven't, you will be. Because unfortunately, betrayal is part of living in a fallen world. We heard of, from John Key's um, story of his life, the betrayal of a son looking for love in a father and not finding it. But so how often is, is, is that the case in, in the world in which we live, in which, in which as uh, children they, they look for love and acceptance from their, 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 their parents and they don't get it. They look for a home of security and love and they find a, a home of, of division, of tension, They look for, for love in their, in their parent and they find that their parent is too busy with work or has found something else in life that they have moved on to and they're betrayed. Or perhaps it's the betrayal of a spouse when you've committed your life to being together and all of a sudden you find that the other one wasn't thinking that at all. And they walk out on you. Or perhaps it's the betrayal of friends. Friends standing on your back when your back is turned so that they may climb the social ladder with someone else. So-called friends who post something about you on social media that just really cuts to the core. And you think to yourself, but I thought, I thought we were friends. I thought I could depend on this person. The betrayal of a, of a workmate who you thought you were working together on a project and then all of a sudden they have taken the project on themselves. 
or, or a work partner who says, actually, I don't want to work with you anymore. I'm going out on my own. Betrayal. Betrayal. The worst feeling in the world is knowing you've been used and lied to by someone you trusted. Betrayal is one of those wounds which, which cuts deep to our souls, doesn't it? It's not just a superficial glance on the body, but, but, the, but the wound of betrayal is something which goes deep and rips at our insides of who we are. I love this second quote here which I've put up here, where it says, the worst pain in the world goes beyond physical, even further beyond than any other emotional pain one can feel. It is the betrayal of a friend. Notice where I got this from. I'm quite pleased with this quote. I've got this from a book called Ninth Grade Slays. Now, this is not a, a, a book I would normally turn to to quote, but... I found that the quote is absolutely fantastic. The book itself, I've, I've, I've never read. It's apparently about a guy who's part vampire, part human, and the difficulty he has fitting in at school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So, so ninth grade slaves. Don't, I, I don't. I'm not suggesting you read the book. But when I when I came across when I came across a, that that quote, I thought actually, you know, the book, the sources come from it. So. Dodgy, but actually the quote is so real with, 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 with getting to the essence of the pain of, of, of betrayal. There is nothing worse. And uh, I guess actually I feel a little bit like Paul, eh? How he was able to quote the, the modern day writers when he was out there um, witnessing and, and telling the story of Christ, yeah. Um, but I'm not thinking that any of you will have actually read that book, though. Uh, that might be the difference in that illustration. But yeah, betrayal is something that, 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 that rocks our foundation of who, who we are. It, 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 dramatic, it, it dramatically changes the way that we view the world for a moment. Betrayal has that ability to completely change our vision of what is happening all around us. And worse than that, betrayal has the power to change you and start making you do things that actually you shouldn't be doing. It has the power to make you not be true to who you are. Betrayal changes lives. Today we're going to be continuing our series of Transformed, looking into this second half of the book of John. And we are potentially going to be looking at one of the, 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 the great stories of betrayal that everyone is familiar with, the betrayal of Jesus by his disciple Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. A little bit of a heads up, though. As we look at this story of betrayal and as we learn from it, you are not going to go away from here today with the 12 steps of overcoming betrayal. Because this is not a dialogue from Jesus teaching on how we may overcome betrayal. However, 
it is an incredibly powerful insight, I think, into how the Son of God himself dealt with betrayal in his own life. And some very powerful key things that we can learn from it ourselves as we start to wrestle with betrayal in our own lives. But just before we turn to today's verses, I just again want to pause and think about John's gospel as a whole. John's gospel was most probably the last of the four gospels to be written. John writes his gospel right from the very beginning so that you would know that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He has written his gospel in such a way that there is no way you can read from beginning to end of John's gospel and be left with any other thought than Jesus Christ was the Son of God and he came to earth to save us. From the very first words of John's gospel where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then from there, John takes that word and brings him into the world. And then the world rejects him. The light shone in the darkness and the darkness did not understand it. That is the theme of John's gospel. It's little surprise then that as we turn to this section of the betrayal of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, that key moment leading up to the crucifixion of our Saviour, that John wants to return to the roots of what this gospel is all about and leave the reader in no uncertainty that Jesus Christ was Son of God and that he was fully in control even now. And as we read these words together, I want you to, to, as you you read the words, just think to yourself of the influence of the betrayer in the story. How big a deal is the betrayer and what unfolds in the Garden of Gethsemane? And you may be astounded, actually, the answer is not much. Come with me. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 18, starting verse 1. The words will be up here on on the screen. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came, sorry, I need to keep up with my my clicker, won't I? So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Now, for a number of you here, 
reading, reading this, this, this story of, of, of John's description of what happened in Gethsemane, John's left out massive parts. He's got Jesus going along into, into the garden, and then the next thing you know it, Jesus is going out to welcome his betrayer and, and, and the officials and the soldiers coming to, to, to arrest him. Where's all this prayer of, of, of Father, take this cup from me and things like that? That obviously happened because it's so well described in the other Gospels. But I think, again, that's not the key message that John is wanting us to get from his description of the events in the Garden of Gethsemane. So what was happening? Well, the setting of it. As, as, we, uh, as we talked about earlier, the, the, um, Jesus was, was thought to have been... Uh, in, in the, having the Last Supper in the uh, cell, cell western corner of, of the old Jerusalem. And, uh, and then sort of at the end of chapter 14, he says, come, let us leave. Then we've got a few chapters where we've got no idea where they are. Uh, were they still in the upper room with Jesus uh, talking with them? Were they walking along? Were they centered somewhere near the temple where they could look at the temple gates? Who knows? But now we've got in, in these verses saying, Jesus crosses the Kidron Valley. It's a little, um, it's a little um, wadi. It's a, it's a dry riverbed that only gets filled up uh, in, in the rainy season. And it's out here to the west. Here's the Mount of Olives, and here is the Garden of Gethsemane. A couple of key things to note about where Jesus chooses to go. First of all, it is right out across the valley from the temple, with the temple in full view. Secondly, it is very, very close to the Antonia Fortress. What is the Antonia Fortress? The Antonia Fortress is where the Roman patrol was. Romans didn't often have a presence in Jerusalem, but at this time, at the time of the Passover, when they knew all the Jews would be coming in, the, the Romans moved their legions from Caesarea to the fortress of Atonia there in Jerusalem so that they can be peacekeepers, so they can make sure that if there was an uprising with all these Jews coming into Israel, uh, into Jerusalem, they would be there to quickly stamp it out. So where Jesus chose to go wasn't a place he wasn't running. He wasn't running from them. In fact, he chose a garden which was actually just out the front door. Uh, and across the valley from where all these soldiers were, where the temple guards were, where, where all the officials were. Jesus also cho chose a setting that was actually very familiar with him and his, uh, and his disciples. The Bible says he'd been there many times with his disciples. Garden of Gethsemane literally called the oil press. And I can imagine sort of those days gone by where, where he has sat under these, uh, in the shelter of these olive trees and, and, and taught his disciples uh, in, in the shade and, and, and the heat of the day and things like that. I imagine it was a place of security for them. I imagine it was a place that they knew very well. And it's a place that he knew Judas was going to bring uh, the, the guards and the officials. So the key thing to, to remember from this is right from the very be be beginning of, of this, this, this betrayal, Jesus is in full control of what is going on. He is not a maverick on the run. He is not running from authorities hoping he's not going to be caught. Jesus 
knows exactly what he's doing and he chooses a place which is well known and well accessible for those who needed to be involved with that scene. It was also in his timing. Jesus had finished the discourse. He had finished praying with his disciples. Everything was done. He knew that he had finished saying everything that he needed to say. And so when everything was finished, he moved across the valley to get ready for this next part of the story to, to unfold. So Jesus was full in full control of the timing. He was in full control of, of the, um, the, the setting that, that it was going to happen in. He chose the place that it was going to happen. And, and he was in full control of the whole thing that pans out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas comes with his detachment of uh, Roman guards and temple guards. What I didn't realize till I got into this passage is that word there that they've got uh, detachment or some people may have cohort. The, the, the Greek word used to describe that is, 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 a, a, is, is, a, is a group of, of the, the legion. Now, a legion was 6,000 troops. Normally, this word used here to describe it is one-tenth of that, 600 troops. Now, I must admit, when I thought of Jesus' rest in the Garden of Gethsemane, I always had those sort of Christmas plays in mind where about 10 guys or perhaps four turn up with little spears um, and, and, and sort of arrest Jesus. Now, there may not have been 600. It, it may have been 200. But it's going to be a lot. And if anyone like me grew up reading Asterix and Obelix, we'll know that the Romans always did anything in mass. And there was no difference here in, in this setting where, where, where the, the, the Judas brings the, 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 the soldiers and the, um, the temple authorities together. This wasn't a small band coming. This was a large mass of people, potentially up to a thousand of them by the time you had all the officials and temple guards and things like that. It's a large band of people coming to take Jesus away. But Jesus remains in complete control, and he goes out to meet them. And he says, Who is it you want? And let's pick up the story, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now hold on to your hats here because this story has some bizarre scenes in it. And this is bizarre scene number one. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. You can imagine John's, John's writing this a few years later and he's still struggling with Judas, isn't he? You know, this is the second time. First of all, he's been, he's been the, um, the betrayer and now Judas the traitor. Um, not so with Jesus. I am, uh, I am he, Jesus said. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, it's very easy to quickly read past these words and then keep on going with the story. But actually, just think about that for a second. They drew back and fell to the ground. Hundreds of Roman soldiers, battle-hardened, drew back 
and fell to the ground at the very words of Jesus Christ. What words did Jesus choose to say? In our Bibles, it's got, I am he. But actually, in reality, you could have lost the he part. Because the words he, he uses there is ego, I me. Ego, I me. I am. Ego, I me is the very phrase that God uses to describe himself in Exodus. Ego, I me is the very phrase that Jesus uses to link himself to God and throughout the, the Gospel of, of John where we've got the, the, the great I am, seven great I am's of Jesus. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the vine, the true vine. Ego, I me. It's a, it's a phrase that, got, that, that Christ uses again and again through his Gospels to, to demonstrate his deity. And in, and in John chapter 8, Jesus was having a big debate with, the, with the, the religious leaders of this day. Jesus had just said that basically he, he is the way to salvation. And they were saying, what authority do you have? We are Abraham's children. Who are you? And at the end of, uh, of, of chapter 8, Jesus says, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this moment, when this detachment came to arrest Jesus, he uttered those same words again, I am. And they fell to the ground. The voice that flung the stars into space, the voice that spoke and created this earth, the breath that breathed life into mankind spoke that night in the Garden of Gethsemane and man could not stand in his presence. All of a sudden, this, this, this balance of a thousand to one was incredibly outweighed in favor of the one. Because man cannot stand in the presence of the glory of God. And in this, Jesus just spoke, and it was too much. This time, the declaration of Christ's deity was too much for people to stand and they literally fell to the ground. Jesus was in full control. Now, if it was you or me, these next few verses would have been quite different, I'm sure. If it was you or me who had that power, it would have been sort of something like, 
Judas, you betray me with a kiss? Well, how about a kiss from above? <laughs> now, seriously, though, wouldn't you? I mean, oh, you might be saying, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I bet you would, eh? A lightning bolt or something like that? That would be where we would go. But read these next verses. Where does Jesus go with all this power that he has? Verse 7, again he asked them, Who is it you want? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So we, we would have used this immense power to fry our betrayer. Jesus gently restores. He gently restores them and lets them gather their feet and think again about why they are here. You can imagine the confusion on their faces. They'd be knocked to the ground. They'd be saying, well, where, what happened? You know, they, they were standing there and then all of a sudden they're on the ground and, and they sort of get to their feet. And Jesus almost has to gently remind them, hey, guys, 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 you're here to arrest me. And so he restores them to this mission that he has. And he says, guys, who is it you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he says, here I am. This is me. Let my disciples go free. So throughout all this, he is in incredible control, and yet he uses his, his, his power beautifully to restore people. And he looks after his disciples to make sure that they are, are not harmed in all this. What authority does he have to the Roman guards and the people coming to arrest to say who gets arrested and not? He's a person being arrested. Strictly speaking, he has no authority. But he has every authority as a son of God to tell them exactly who to arrest. I love Simon Peter. And I think Simon may have been a little bit more how, how we would like to have responded at that time. Because this is bizarre scene number two. And from verse 10 it says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter, I imagine, was, was all excited by the fact that Jesus displayed a bit of power and he thought he was going to come in here. Let's start this revolution. Let's get it going. And so he's, so he's swept out with a sword and he's cut off this, this high priest's right ear. And Jesus says, no, no, put it away, Peter. You've got no idea what's happening. Because Peter didn't understand what was, was going on. And he caused pain because he saw this betrayal and he lashed out and said, let's, let's go get them. 
But Jesus understood fully what was going on. That the cup of suffering was his. He was going to take on the cup of suffering for all of us. He was going to take on the cup of God's wrath for all of us. He knew his position. He knew what he was there for. He knew what his mission was. And he said, Peter, put it away. The other, the other gospels describe how he then heals the ear of Malchus. And Malchus goes away healed. And, and you think to yourself, well, whatever happened to Malchus? I went searching for Malchus. I thought, surely after such a great event such as that, he would have gone out as a missionary, he would have planted all these churches somewhere. I couldn't find him anywhere. And I went through various websites and Google things and things like that, and he just seems to disappear. And initially I always thought, oh, how odd. How could someone have an encounter with Jesus like that and not be changed? But then I thought to myself, actually, that happens all the time, doesn't it? Jesus offers healing. He offers life. He offers true life. And people just reject him and go on their way. End of the story says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for all people. Here's the bizarre thing. Jesus chose the time. He chose the time of his arrest. Earlier in the, in the Gospels, it talks about the, the Jewish leaders wanting to arrest him, but his time was not now. And he walked through the, cloud, the, the crowds. In John 8, they went to stone him, and he suddenly disappeared from among them. But now was his time, and he, was, he allowed himself to be arrested and taken to the, the high priest. Caiaphas was the guy who said earlier in John, it is better for one man to die for all of us. Caiaphas was just thinking about saving his own bacon at that stage. But isn't it ironic how, powerful, how true those words actually were because he was bang on, because Jesus Christ was going to die for everyone. Everyone. Jesus was in full control of what happened that day in Gethsemane. And the betrayer actually plays a relatively minor part in the overall story. John writes the story, not to say this betrayer was this, was this massive problem, but actually to say, yeah, Jesus was betrayed and the betrayer was, the, the, the betrayer was a traitor, but you know what? God was just so much bigger that day. God was just so much bigger and he had just so much control and Jesus was in full control of what happened that night in Gethsemane. Betrayed? Don't focus on the betrayer. Focus on the God who remains in control. The one who has the ability to heal. The one who has the ability to remove that dagger of betrayal from our back. Just that I had a shopping bag here. Virtual reality is the way these days. And you go around the shopping centres and things like that, and, and at homes, virtual reality is taking over. Now, I can't actually see a thing because I haven't hooked this on, um, which is a slight problem, um, and I, I won't step forward too far. 
But the reality is, I think sometimes we allow betrayal to be like virtual reality goggles in our lives. We allow the betrayal to completely alter our vision, our outlook. We allow betrayal to completely change how we interact with people, how we interact with the environment around us. We allow betrayal to scar us to a point where we want to scar others. We want retaliation. We want to do things which actually aren't who we're created to be. And I think this story of the, the Garden of Gethsemane to me is God saying to us, actually, take off those virtual reality glasses and focus on me because I am the one with the master plan. I am the one who will never let you down. I am the one whose love is complete. I am the one who's going to work through everything for your good. I am the one who has redeemed you. I am the one who has called you my child. I am the one who has said you are eternally secure in me. And I am the one who has ultimate control of what goes on. And I am the one who will be glorified in you. Take off your virtual reality glasses and look at me. I think everyone should get a pair of virtual reality glasses for at home. So blokes, you can practice taking off your virtual reality glasses at the end of the game and say to yourself, this is a lesson. I need to focus my eyes on God. So everyone needs a pair. <laughs> Jesus Christ was secure in who he was. He knew what his outlook was. He knew that his life was secure. He knew that he, he was God's son and he didn't allow the betrayal to change how he interacted. He loved and was in full control. And we, like him, need to trust our father and hand things to him who judges justly. Betrayed. Don't focus on the betrayer, John says. Focus on the God who remains in control and loves your soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that indeed we are your children. We thank you for the immense security that we have in you. We thank you for this example of of, of Jesus that we have in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. How, how even though things may have been looked in, in chaos, even things may have things been looking grim, actually, he was in full control. You were in full control. Because you were God. Help us, I pray, to hand things to you and to focus our vision on you.
Transform us, we pray. Amen.